John made his morning commute the way he always did. He weaved in and out of traffic as frustration built within his chest and disgust became written across his face. He listened to discouraging news reports, sipped his coffee, and stole a quick glance at his GPS and a quicker one at his side view mirror. Seeing he was in the clear, he turned the wheel to maneuver around some fool who had the nerve to drive the speed limit. Just then, as John was contemplating teaching the driver in front of him some rather mean sign language, he was interrupted as the horn of another vehicle filled his ear. Quickly, he snapped the wheel back behind the slow driver and was retaught the gesture he had just thought of teaching someone else. He slowed for a moment as his heart beat rapidly within his chest. He had been terrified. He had almost caused an accident. John had forgotten to check his blind spot. Have you all ever had an experience like this? None of you, I'm sure. But you've heard about what it's like. You think that there's nobody there, and you start to go over just a little bit, then you hear the horn, and you whip your car right back where you were. It's a little scary. We all have blind spots, not just when we drive, but in our lives. There are things about ourselves that we fail to see. Paul today is addressing a major blind spot in the Corinthian church. The Corinthians have become so enamored with status-seeking in their culture that they have become blind to their need to speak prophetically to it and live holy lives within it. Instead, they've begun to live according to the wisdom of the world, building themselves up rather than Christ. And so Paul aims to open their eyes to the dissonance between their profession of Christ and their worldly living. He's continuing to, to beat on that drum as he has the first four chapters. He, he wants them to be unified, to be humble. This morning he's going to tell them to be the church and to live cross-shaped lives. You have your outline there before you. It looks the same as it did two weeks ago when I, I started to preach this sermon and we got through verse 7. Uh, and so we're going to cover the second part of that outline today. Uh, we're going to review verses 6 and 7 a little bit and then we'll look at the lives in contrast, how different Paul's life looks from the lives of the Corinthians. Then we'll see Paul give the Corinthians encouragement and a warning at the end of the chapter, and that'll kind of sum up in a package that first section of Corinthians, and Paul's arguments will, will shift in chapter 5 as he begins addressing other matters. Let's pray together, and then we'll uh, review and get into the text. Father, we need you this morning. We need you. Make your presence known. Let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Make me the conduit through which you would speak this morning. Help us to smell the holy fragrance of this text before us and to be changed by it. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. 
For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you did not receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Remember, Paul's deflation of the puffed-up church in Corinth has already begun, and he is once again going to reiterate that none of us has any reason to feel superior to somebody else. If you remember all the way back from chapter 1, the Corinthians have been using their associations with these celebrity or brand-name teachers to make themselves feel better than someone else. They'd even been using their endowments with particular spiritual gifts to climb up onto their metaphorical pedestals and proclaim themselves the best, better than the rest. And so Paul, with the power of his transformative rhetorical questions in verse 7, punctures a hole in their big heads. The air is beginning to escape. Last week we contemplated those questions in verse 7 together, and we found ourselves too humbled by God's extravagant grace. We, We together recognize that everything we have, absolutely everything, is by God's grace. We have nothing to boast in. We didn't make our hair color the color it is. Natural hair color, ladies. We didn't make ourselves as tall as we are. We didn't choose where we were going to be born. Those are gifts from God. Even our achievements, the motives underneath of our hearts that drove us to work hard. God has given us everything. Therefore, there are no grounds upon which we can stand and say, look at me, I'm better than the person next to me. No, everything we have has been received. As Paul says elsewhere, all that I am, I am by the grace of God. And that's true of every man, every woman, every child. There is no grounds for arrogance. All that we have, all that we are, is the direct result of God's loving kindness, and we talked about last week, God's grace humbles us and unites us because it dissolves all the things that we take pride in, all those things that threaten to divide us. And so now that Paul has humbled the Corinthians, he's going to move forward in his argument and and continue kind of rebuking them. He's going to remind them of how they should be living life. He wants them to be the church by being humbled and living cross-shaped lives. Let's look at verses 8 through 13. I'm going to start in 7 actually. In fact, you did not receive it. Why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You are already full. You're already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us, and I wish you did reign, so that we could also reign with you. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the very present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working hard with our hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. 
Paul is utilizing some scathing sarcasm here to highlight the contrast between the Corinthians and true Christian lifestyles, right? He, he and the apostles are representing what it looks like to live a Christian life in Corinth, whereas the Corinthians are kind of living in a way that is worldly. They're living as kings in this world, kings of culture, if you will, while Paul and the apostles live as its scum, as if they were criminals condemned to die. The problem here is that the Corinthians think they have glory already because things are going so well for them, right? They're among the beautiful and successful people in the world. They see their prosperity as a sign of their superiority. A couple weeks ago, we used that illustration of the CBS broadcast of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. And remember, that's a story about aliens invading New York City, and people wrongly heard it and thought that aliens were actually invading New York City and started to freak out. They'd been deceived. And we'd said, just like the people of the CBS broadcast wrongly thought that aliens had arrived, the Corinthians wrongly believed themselves to have arrived spiritually. The root of the problem among the lavish living Corinthians is a misunderstanding of eschatology. Don't be worried about that word. It's just, it's just a theological word. This is, it's a fancy word for the study of the return of Jesus. It has to do with God's final judgment of this world and his remaking of earth into heaven. If you want to impress your friends with this week, you can use that word. Uh, you can summarize the whole sermon and say that we study the eschatological miscalculations of the Corinthian church and its effect on the cruciform life. Right? You'll sound real smart. We're talking about how we need to understand Jesus' return and how understanding his return impacts how we live right now. The Corinthians have misunderstood it, right? They, they've got things out of balance. There's this already and not yet to the Christian life. We've talked about it plenty before, right? There are things that are true of us in Jesus already and others that are not yet true of us. And so a great example of this is that we are already positionally just or right with God. We've been declared righteous in Christ but we are not yet practically righteous. In life, we still screw up and we still sin, right? So there's an already declared right, but not yet made perfect. Not until Christ returns. And so there's this tension to the Christian life, and if we get that tension out of whack, it's going to screw everything else up. The Corinthians have basically done away with all the not yets, right? They're acting and living as if Jesus has already returned, so you know the end is near groups, right? People walk around, the end is near, beware. Um, or they're going to predict the world's going to end, like Harold Camping, I think, was the most recent. Like everything, it's all coming to the end. The Corinthians are a little bit like that, except for uh, their signs might read, the end has already come. We're reigning. That's why Paul uses the language of reigning in verse 8, right? He says, you're already full. You're already rich. You've begun to reign as kings without us. He's sarcastic here. They're acting as if heaven has come and they're reigning with Christ. And I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. He's pointing out that if the Corinthians are reigning with Christ and if Jesus has returned, then he and other Christians would be reigning with them. But it's quite obvious by all that follows that indeed Paul and the other apostles are not reigning as kings in a new heaven. All Christians are not participating in this. While the Corinthians are living splendid lives in the city, the apostles and other Christian leaders are suffering. 
Indeed, Paul wishes that Jesus had returned so that the joy of the future would already be being experienced in its fullness by all Christians, but that's not the case. The reality is is that the Corinthians are massively mistaken. They've mistaken their material prosperity for the future glory of heaven. They've confused having their felt needs met with having the riches of the gospel. And so they're living irresponsibly without the hope of future blessing. They have a very small view of God, a myopic view of the future. And their lack of imagination leaves them believing that life in Corinth is as good as it gets. There's nothing else to look forward to because we've got it all. We're comfortable, well-fed. They think they've got it all, which is a little little hard to comprehend, especially because they lived so long ago. They didn't even have the internet yet, or Star Wars movies, or uh, combustion engines, all these really good things. Some plumbing, but it wasn't great. But they believe it's as good as it gets. I'm afraid that we commit the same sins. That we're all too guilty of all too often living as if this life is as good as it gets. As if this life is all there is. I wonder if you've confused your current material blessing for the glory of heaven. Here's how you can tell. Ask yourself this question and be be honest. Do you look forward to Jesus' return? Do you long for it? Practically, are you living as if you already have all you could ever want? Do you want thy kingdom come? Or are you happy with your kingdom here? I think too many of us are content with our kingdom here. We ought to be humbled right along with the Corinthians. I mean, what makes you think that we are any better than them? We need to hear God's word to them here. Just as the Israelites needed to heed his warning in Deuteronomy 8.12, it's for us too. When you eat and are full, and build beautiful houses to live in, and your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold multiply, and everything else you have increases, be careful that your heart doesn't become proud, and you forget the Lord your God. In the midst of great blessing, there is great temptation to become comfortable, fat, and forgetful. Some of us have taken a firm hold on the American dream and loosened our grips on the bloody cross of Christ. Some of us have put all of our eggs in the here and now basket. We live for our bank account or our family, whatever idol it is. And forget Christ. Forget that the best is yet to come. We do not live with an eternal perspective. Where are you investing? In the here and now? Or in eternity? Are you living too comfortably? We need to put our hopes in the future. In the return of Jesus. Not our bank accounts. Not our families. Not our good health. All of these are fleeting They're foolish investments in the long term. In the long term, we must put our hope in, invest in Jesus. We mustn't confuse having our felt needs met with the eternal blessing of God. 
The blessed Christian life is not evaluated according to worldly standards. The successful Christian life is not about getting the best jobs or the most money or the biggest house. The faithful Christian life doesn't follow the way of kings, but the way of the cross. For the Christian, success is not being normal. Success is being crucified. That's what a successful Christian life is. Daily picking up your cross and following the one who was crucified for your sins. If Christian success or faithfulness were measured by wealth or popularity or acceptance, then Paul and the apostles were terrible Christians. If the Corinthians were right and the end had really come, then Paul and the apostles and other Christians had a very special place in God's kingdom. Look at verse 9. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place. Like men condemned to die, we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. You all have been to Christmas parades before, right? Did you know that all this stuff goes by and you wait for the very last thing to come? And everybody knows the last part of a Christmas parade, right? Santa and his sleigh. Everybody waits for Santa. That, that's what everybody comes to see. He's the main attraction. Similarly here, Paul is speaking of himself and the other apostles as a spectacle at the end of a grand parade. D.A. Carson helps us to understand. Paul's metaphor likely draws on the triumphal processions of returning Roman legions. The senior military people would come first, then the more junior ones. Behind them, the prisoners would be dragged along in descending order of rank. Among the defeated foes, the lowest classes and the slaves would bring up the rear, knowing they were destined for the arena. There they would die at the hands of gladiators or would simply be thrown to the wild beasts for the amusement of the populace. Within Paul's picture, the Corinthians have this grandstand view of the apostles and the gladiators. It's as if they sit in tiered seats in the Roman Colosseum and look down while Paul and the other apostles are put in the ring as spectacles. Surely the Corinthians should be ashamed to sit back and applaud or even boo, to even watch this. That's what Paul is doing. He's drawing the distinction. They are suffering in the arena while the Corinthians are comfortable. I can't help but when I consider the image of Paul and the apostles made a spectacle as they walk their way toward death as men condemned to die, I can't help but have an image of Christ walking his way towards death even as he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. I think we cannot help but be reminded of God's display of justice and wrath and mercy in the great spectacle that is the cross of Christ the cross upon which Jesus hung as a fool in weakness, dishonored, both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, beaten, blessing as, if, as he was cursed, loving as he was treated as the scum of the earth. On the cross, Jesus, the King of glory, was treated not as a king, but as a criminal. And as a criminal, he was killed for our sins so that we might not be criminals but become children in the kingdom of God. This is a wonderful truth. If you turn from your sins and believe the gospel, believe in Jesus, your sins are wiped out. 
You're forgiven by God and restored to a relationship with God. That, that's what you were made for. It's wonderfully good news. It's a message worth dying for, worth suffering for. God's wisdom in the foolishness of the cross reminds us how blind we can be to our wickedness and to his wisdom. Paul is exposing the gap that exists between the way the Corinthians came to believe, what they profess to believe, and how they are living. Their life isn't matching up with their doctrine. That's unacceptable. Their pride has blinded them to the grace of God. They've forgotten the source of their salvation and exchanged their crosses for couches of comfort. See this in that very ironic juxtaposing of Paul's life with the lives of the Corinthians in verse 10. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the very present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. The Corinthians really would have hated that. They looked down on people that had to work for a living. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. Can you feel Paul's biting irony here? It's like, y'all live like kings. You are the rich and the famous and the beautiful. But we who are following Jesus faithfully are being treated as the scum of the earth. You're great, but we are garbage. The language of scum and garbage is really strong, and the two words are almost synonymous. Uh, They refer to the off-scouring that is removed in the process of cleansing, either sweepings from the floor, so if you think about dirt and muck on the floor, or dirt removed from the body. I can't help but when I read those descriptions of the words uh, to recall when I was in college. I lived, when I was a senior at WVU, I lived with two guys, and they were not the most cleanly of fellows. Not going to name them, but, but one guy used to actually trim his toenails uh, by biting them off, right? And so pretty, pretty dirty environment, but, but I endured. And I'll never forget, at the bottom of the shower, about midway through the semester, there was this it was maybe an organism. I think it might have had life to it. But it's just straight black, like this, this thick. And if you stepped in there, you'd have to grab on to like the rails to keep yourself up. And you, know, you try, don't want to step in it, so you're like trying to, uh, it was really awkwardly standing to shower. Disgusting. Right? Or if you've ever pulled your wife's hair out of the drain, awful. That is what Paul is saying he and the apostles are like in Corinth. They're like shower scum. The second thing I think of is when Chelsea and I visited our missionary friends in China. One of the peculiar things they do is they have a basket of slippers if you go into somebody's house, most everybody's house. They have a basket of slippers in all kinds of different sizes. And what you do when you go in is you slip your shoes off and you put a pair of the slippers on. Now, that's kind of cool. They just want you to be more comfortable around here. Really nice. Good idea. But that's not why they do it. As you spend more time kind of on the streets, you recognize that uh, some of their hygienic considerations are, are not as high as our own. And, and I think this is best illustrated just by the advent of split pants. Do you all know what split pants are? In China, instead of diapering their kids, uh, their, the children's clothing, and they sell it like this, just has a split down the middle, like a hole, right? 
so that the kid can just go whenever, wherever, when they want to, right? It just comes out. That's crazy. I'm like, put a diaper on your kid. This is weird. But, but when, you, when you consider that, when you consider that, that, that that's what you're walking on among the streets, how filthy your feet get, you start to understand why they have you put slippers on when you come into their home. But this is what Paul is saying he and the disciples are like. All that stuff, that scum and garbage that you would step in and scrape from your shoe. They have the scrapings from the bottoms of filthy feet. Paul's point here is that spirituality is not about status, but about sacrifice. It's about following the crucified Messiah King. Here's what we need to learn. Identifying with the crucified Messiah will make us appear weak and foolish to the world. And inevitably, we will be opposed by the world. And to different degrees, all Christians will suffer for the gospel. You will suffer. It probably won't be to the extent as some of our brothers and sisters suffer around the world. I mean, evidence of that this morning, right? 36 of our family members were killed by two twin blasts in Cairo, Egypt for merely identifying with Christ and attending a worship gathering on Palm Sunday. I mean, something we take for granted, coming here, gathering together, they do knowing that they might not come home. They only make up 10% of the population in Egypt. And they are physically persecuted in a way that's brutal. They risk their lives to gather together and worship King Jesus. And some mornings you're not even willing to get out of bed. This is what they give up. This is how they sacrifice to serve the King We're fortunate to live at a time and a place where it's easy for us to gather. And our suffering is often not physical. I mean, it's minimal in comparison to those around the world and those who have gone before us. But indeed, we will experience suffering in this life, in this country, in the form of cultural marginalization and ridicule. The opposition to any form of Christianity that holds to the truth of the Bible is growing rapidly. I mean, if you don't believe me, all you have to do is go into culture and espouse a Christian understanding of marriage, family, and sexuality. You will be considered scum. Go into culture professing that Jesus is the only way, and you will be called garbage. Go into culture proclaiming simply that truth can be known, and you will be thought foolish. After all, Time Magazine declared truth to be dead this year, just as they had declared God to be dead not so long ago. Go into culture, tell others that the God-man Jesus Christ is alive and that God can be known. You will be slandered. But go, we must. Evangelism in the Christian life is not optional. All Christians are going to live on mission You're either missionaries or you are imposters. If you are not sharing your faith, if it is not the goal of your life to make Jesus known, then something is wrong. Your priorities have gotten out of order. He is who you are supposed to be living your life for. 
not yourself. Following the way of the cross means taking up your cross and walking the road to Calvary's hill. What has God called you to do? What obedience has he summoned you to that you are slow to obey? Paul wants us to have the image of his cross-shaped life in our minds as we think about what following Jesus looks like in our lives. And so he moves to encourage and warn us in verse 14 through 21. This is what he says. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. For you may have countless instructors or guardians in Christ, but you can't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod, or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Let's start at the back end there and talk about Paul's warning. He's basically telling the Corinthians, and don't think I'm not coming to see you. You need to get your stuff straight before I get there. If the troublemakers among you are going to persist in arrogance, I will humble them with the power of God and his rod of correction. That The choice is yours. When I show up, do you want the tender affection of a father or his discipline? Paul's saying, do you want a hug or a spanking? So it'll be like uh, when I try to get Elliot to do things sometimes. Like, do you want to go to timeout or do you want lucky charms, right? Obey and good things are going to happen to you. We see that gentleness and severity are both parts of love. We'll see more of the severity side in chapter 5. But it's because Paul loves the Corinthians that he wants them to be more Christ-like. He knows that while the way of the cross is difficult, it is eternally beneficial. His metaphor here of fatherly care, uh, which is carried throughout the section, reminds us that the Corinthians have need to submit to his God-given authority, right? He, he's showing them that he brought them to the faith and he's acting as their father. I mean, some of them might speak with persuasive words and try to sow dissent, but Paul is speaking divinely inspired words. Paul's words are infused with the very power of God. And God's words are to be obeyed. Basically, he's kind of saying, we're going to be able to see the difference when I come between the wheat and the weeds. We're going to see which word really has the power to change. And he's saying, it's not these folks that are lying to you, that are misleading you into divisions. He's warning them about the powerlessness of worldly wisdom, and he's exhorting them to live cruciform, that's cross-shaped lives. Look at verse 14. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. For you may have countless instructors or guardians in Christ, but you can't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. 
Uh, when Paul refers to instructors, or some of your translations have guardians there, what he's talking about is kind of a first century babysitter, right, or a teacher. Uh, if you've ever sent your uh, kids off to school or given them to a babysitter, that person has temporary authority over your children. They should listen to them. It's true. But at the same time, their authority is, is not your authority as mom or dad, right? It's different. And so Paul, he's not disparaging these other teachers that are doing a good job. He's simply saying, you, you might follow these guardians and instructors, and they might be good, Apollos or Peter or anybody else, but they don't have the same relationship with you that I do. I have the relationship with you of a father. The relationship of the guardian or instructor would never equal that of the father. His unique relationship with the Corinthians as father gives him a special authority and responsibility toward them. Paul, Paul's goal in the section, he tells us, it's not to shame the Corinthians, though he certainly does that, right? Like you read, you read the words before this and you're going to be ashamed. It's not to shame them. His primary goal is to lead them to repentance. He's urging the Corinthians to follow him as he follows Jesus. He's going to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ in chapter 11, verse 1. He wants them to follow his way of life. I mean, don't miss his logic, right? He's saying, I'm your father, therefore imitate me. That logic is lost on us as a contemporary audience, but, but back in the day, there was tremendous pressure to imitate your father as a son. Right? We don't really have that pressure today. Like if you're a young kid, you don't feel pressured to go into the same vocation as your father. But in the first century, really any pre-industrial culture, sons were expected to do what daddy did, right? So if the father was a baker, the son would become a baker. Father was a carpenter, son would become a carpenter. Son was a farmer. Sorry, the father was a farmer, the son would become a farmer. The son was expected to carry on family values, family heritage, and the family name. With that cultural expectation kind of controlling this analogy, Paul is arguing that if he is the father of the Corinthians, they ought to imitate him. They need to be like him in the faith. He, he wants the old phrase, like father, like son, to be true of the Corinthians. He's not like the parents, and not that any of you have ever done this, that say to their kids, don't do as I do, do as I say. No, Paul's not saying that. He's saying, do as I do. Look at my life. I'm following Jesus. I'm living in obedience to his word. You want to know what following Jesus looks like? Look at my life. Live like I'm living. Paul's even going to send them a model of this cross-shaped life, right? He's saying, I can't get there just yet to show you how to follow Jesus this way, but I'm going to send Timothy, and I love Timothy. He's going to come to you, and he's going to clear up any confusion you might have about what the Christian life should look like. Verse 16, imitate me, is really the practical takeaway of the first four chapters, right? It's the most practical thing that Paul has said. If you want to be rid of your prideful divisions, if you want to abandon worldly living and live like God has called you to, then simply live as I am living because I am following Jesus faithfully. Imitate me. If the Corinthians want to be 
the church and be united as the church. They must simply imitate Paul's faith, his way of life. It's not enough for them to simply espouse belief in the gospel. Their behavior must confirm that belief. They must live cross-shaped lives. I've told you many times, belief is born out in behavior. You live what you believe. What does your life say about what you believe, Christian? Does it say you're more concerned with cultural comforts, living as kings in this world, queens in this world, or that you are concerned with the cause of Christ? I wonder, can you say with Paul, would you feel confident with saying with Paul, if somebody asked you, what does a Christian life look like? Would you be able to say, well, imitate me. Look at my life. This is what the Christian life looks like. If you can't, if you can't, if you're not regularly taking up your cross, you don't have faith. You have a hobby. And Christianity is a really lame hobby. Following Jesus means taking up your cross. And those who follow the ways of the cross will be persecuted just as the man of the cross was persecuted. I wonder, are you prepared to suffer for the gospel? I mean, how how does one even prepare to suffer? How how does one live a cross-shaped life? Grace. Grace. Grace prepares us for suffering and strengthens us in suffering. When we look to all that God has promised us for eternity, we are able to, even in the midst of the deepest possible pain, smile. We we can rejoice in our suffering because we know our suffering isn't the last word. We know that Jesus had something to say about suffering in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. I mean, that's a counterintuitive truth about suffering in the Christian life. Right? Suffering brings reward. Suffering actually prepares you, Christian, for more glory. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 at the end, verse 17, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. You see what's going on? Our affliction, our suffering, when we are persecuted, those things are producing for us an incomparable weight of glory. So that the suffering feels light as a feather. So we don't focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. How how do you live a cross-shaped life? Your focus is not on the here and the now, but on the eternal, on Christ. These verses are like sandpaper on our modern sentiment about suffering. I mean, we naturally try to avoid suffering at all costs. But God brings suffering into our lives for the sake of our eternal joy. Even 
glory. Friends, do not be short-sighted. This life is not as good as it gets. There is a glory to come. A happiness that will so far outweigh our suffering and sadness that it will be almost forgotten. Like a gnat that lands on your shoulder during a day at the beach. Forgotten. Light. Producing glory. Are you living like the Corinthians as if this passing world were going to last forever? Well, what matters most, friends, is not what you can see and feel right now. And that's a lie that, that preys on us and, so, and so many others. It's a lie we believe, that the here and now is what's most important, but it's not. Have you been deceived by your bank accounts, your homes, your good health, your relationships into thinking like the Corinthians that this world is all there is? It's not. Picking up your cross and following Jesus brings a reward and a joy beyond our ability to comprehend. Yes, the cross is the center of the Christian life, but it is not the end of the Christian life. We go through the crucifixion in this life into the resurrection life of the new heavens and the new earth where everything sad is made untrue. So no matter how we are suffering, no matter how we are persecuted, no matter how we are marginalized, our identity is not in what is happening to us right now. Our identity is seated at the right hand of God and He is feeling just fine. Jesus is our identity. He is our hope and our stay and our strength. He is our joy. He is our treasure and it's a treasure that is hidden in heaven. A treasure that this world cannot touch. A treasure that cannot be taken away by moth and dust or the bombs of a terrorist. No, it's an untouchable treasure kept in heaven for you. His name is Jesus. And so while Jesus has promised us in the short term a cross on our backs, He's promised us in the long term a crown of life. Brothers and sisters, do not confuse the paltry crowns of this world with heaven's crown of glory. Be the church and live cross-shaped lives. Let's pray. Father, you, we thank you for your plan in eternity to send Christ to die for our sins as our substitute. Not only to die for our sins, but to rise in victory over them and over death. Thank you that Jesus shed his blood so that we might believe and be made pure, be made right with you. Thank you for allowing us to enjoy relationship with you. To worship you rightly. Thank you for opening our blinded eyes that we might see and savor the beauty of Christ. Lord, we ask now that you would help us to see any sins in our lives that we have been keeping in blind spots. 
that you would expose our sin and lead us into confession and repentance. Lord, we want all the blessing that you have for us. And so we pray that you empower us to take up our cross daily and follow you. We thank you that we are saved by your grace alone and that it's your grace which empowers us to live in light of our salvation. And so, Lord, we ask now for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would keep your grace fresh on our minds as we continue to sing to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.